nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we put you up close and personal with the International Uranium Film Festival, which was held on Wednesday, April 27, in Hollywood, California. Interviews with filmmakers, celebrities, activists, and audience members create an audio mosaic of You Are There and captures the excitement of having films from our perspective finally meet the movers and shakers of the entertainment industry. Plus, our popular Numbnuts of the Week feature, Nuclear Reactor Duck and Cover Report, and more honest nuclear information than Hollywood had in production, pre-production, post-production, and turnaround before the Uranium Film Festival hit town. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, May 3rd, 2016, and here is the week's nuclear news from our perspective. Today is Tuesday, May 3rd, 2016, and here is the week's nuclear news from our perspective. Actually, it's going to be more than just the past week's news because I'm going to try and catch up with the stories I was too hoarse and bronchial to read over the past few weeks. Starting out with this string of stories from the Hanford site in Washington State. On Sunday morning, April 17, leak detector alarms sounded at the Hanford site, and workers discovered that 8.4 inches of radioactive and chemically toxic waste was sitting in a spot it was never intended to be. The underground storage tanks are only double-shelled, and the waste had leaked into the space between the two shells. According to former Hanford worker Mike Jeffrey, this is catastrophic. This is probably the biggest event to ever happen in tank farm history. The double-shell tanks were supposed to be the savior of all saviors to hold waste safely from people and the environment. Jeffrey is the worker who first discovered that the tank, known as AY-102, was failing back in 2011. Yet, the government contractor in charge of the tanks, Washington River Protection Solutions, ignored Jeffrey's findings for nearly a year until it finally admitted the problem in 2012. Until now, the leak found by Jeffrey was very slow, but has clearly speeded up. A second double-shell tank is now suspected of leaking more waste, nuclear byproducts from nearly four decades of plutonium production at the Hanford nuclear site. As of today, May 3rd, officials say that a total of 26 Hanford nuclear reservation workers have been evaluated for what's being called chemical vapor exposure. 
but the odors are suspected to have come from the several thousand gallons of radioactive waste that leaked from the primary tank last month. You get the smell. Do you also get the radionuclides? Workers are concerned that vapor exposure could cause long-term health problems, and they are right to be concerned. Catching up with the nuclear reactor duck! (laughs) And cover report. At Millstone Nuclear in Connecticut on April 27, a high-energy line break door between a turbine-driven auxiliary feed water pump and the motor-driven auxiliary feed water pump rooms was discovered open and unattended. This condition could have rendered both trains of auxiliary feed water inoperable. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission and the Army Corps of Engineers have concluded that environmental impacts would not prevent the issuance of a license to build and operate the proposed Bell Bend Nuclear Power Plant in Northeast Pennsylvania, protecting people and the environment not. Entergy's Waterford 3 nuclear plant on the west banks of St. Charles Parish in Louisiana has been given nine months to address shortcomings that let contractors falsify fire inspection records for 10 months. The NRC said it won't issue a violation notice or civil penalty for the faked inspections in light of the, quote, significant corrective actions. Don't you just love that word significant? They never define it. They just throw it in there to show you, pay attention to this. Oh, but that's not significant. Don't pay attention to that. Be that as it may. Significant corrective actions Energy already has taken, and the NRC is satisfied that its concerns will be addressed by making Energy's commitments legally binding through a confirmatory order. Blah, blah, blah. People and the environment, guys. People and the environment. (coughs) Energy again. Less than 12 hours after a required public meeting that they obviously had every intention of ignoring from the get-go, Entergy announced that it intends to refuel the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station in Plymouth, Massachusetts next year and not cease operations until May 31st of 2019. The 44-year-old nuclear reactor, now four years past its use-by date as intended by the original engineers, operates at the base of Cape Cod where there is no evacuation route from the Cape and little to no chance of making it out of Boston if and when something goes wrong there. Given the fact that Entergy left the meeting with the public and virtually went directly to announce its refueling, it seems that the Entergy NRC fix was in, and the Cape Downwinders got to be Charlie Brown in a game of Lucy and the Football. And RT.com's list of the eight most dangerous nuclear plants near earthquake fault lines, four are in the United States. Diablo Canyon in California, Indian Point in New York, Columbia Generating Station in Washington State, and Arkansas Nuclear One in Arkansas. And that's our nuclear reactor, Doc! (laughs) And cover report. Which gives us the perfect lead-in to... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. So with all the reasons for us to duck and cover when it comes to nuclear reactors, what do our fair-minded regulators at the Nuclear Rubber Stamp uh, Regulatory Commission decide to do? They are going to cut 
their annual budget by $49 million and eliminate 185 full-time positions over the next two years. They're claiming that this reduction in staff will have no impact on their inspections and oversight because oversight, meaning overlook, is what they do all of the time. This information comes from an NRC-published blog which stated, Progress towards a right-sized, agile nuclear regulator is what they wish to achieve. I think by agile they mean that they can bend over forwards in order to kiss the posteriors of the nuclear industry, and they can also continue bending further and curl up in order to kiss their own posteriors goodbye. Then again, they can always bend over backwards for the nuclear industry, but hey, that's what they've been doing all along. Keep in mind that the NRC is paid not by we the people through our government funds, but they are paid by monies collected from the nuclear industry. So it's not in their interest to have that industry get smaller because that means their money gets smaller and they will continue to shrink. So let's see how all of this overlooking is going to impact their bottom line and the industry over the next two years when 185 workers will go bye-bye. When at the same time the nuclear reactors are getting older, creakier, we have the problem of dry cask storage, it's just going to keep multiplying. So that's why for this budget cut and personnel cut, you Nuclear Regulatory Rubber Stamp Commission are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's of the week. Over to Japan now, where the Fukushima Ice Wall, a.k.a. the Slushy, does not look to be doing very well, despite the fact that it cost 35 billion yen, or $312 million. Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, came up with the idea of a one-mile, 1.5-kilometer-long ice wall around the Fukushima nuclear facility after it became clear it had to do something drastic to stem the flow of groundwater, radioactive groundwater, into the facility's basement and keep contaminated water from falling back out, a.k.a. into the Pacific Ocean. But Yoichi Okamura chief architect of the project, in an interview with the Associated Press, admitted, We have come up against many unexpected problems. What an understatement. It's now known that even if the frozen barrier built with taxpayer money works as envisioned, it will not completely block all water from reaching the damaged reactors because of gaps in the wall and rainfall creating as much as 50 tons of contaminated water, radioactively contaminated water, each day. Japan's Nuclear Regulation Authority warned that if the groundwater levels within the ice wall is reduced excessively by blocking the flow from outside, highly contaminated water within the buildings could seep out as a result. And World Water and Climate Foundation said that TEPCO's idea may not be sustainable over the 200-year period that will be required for the reactors to be decommissioned. Actually, they cannot be decommissioned. You can only decommission an intact reactor. This is about cleaning up the mess. The foundation goes on to say that radioactive materials could become highly concentrated in dense brines and that heating and cooling during the four annual seasons in Japan 
may make the ground of the station site softer and wetter, like a swamp, and it could create another risk to the reactors, such as building destruction. A reminder that, as of April 17, 410 earthquakes were felt in Kyushu in the south of Japan, 162 with a magnitude of at least 3.5. The magnitude 7.3 earthquake and several aftershocks of 6.0 and higher rocked homes and buildings near the Sendai Nuclear Power Station, only 50 miles away from the epicenter of the worst of the earthquakes. These are two of only three nuclear reactors that have been restarted in Japan since the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster began after the earthquake and tsunami on March 11 of 2011 in large part because of the Secrecy Act in Japan, which suppresses honest information about anything nuclear, we do not at this time have informed follow-up information on the condition of the Sendai reactors, and they are still operating. This from Iori Mochizuki and Fukushima Diary. Professor Aoyama from the Institute of Environmental Radioactivity of Fukushima University reported that the radioactive material discharged from the Fukushima plant circulated in the Pacific and has come back to Japan offshore. Professor Aoyama implemented seawater analysis at 71 locations between November 20th of last year and February of this year. The analysis is partly completed and shows radioactive material has spread to the waters offshore of Kyushu in the southwest portion of Japan. It is assumed that the discharged cesium-134 and 137, both markers for Fukushima, traveled to the east in the northern Pacific and then was carried to the south and west to come back to Japan, taking between two and three years to do the full distance. So it looks like the nuclear chickens are coming home to roost in Japan. Forbes has printed a half-baked idea as to how to give Japan what they call the moral authority required to make decisions about the radioactive tritium that is still in Fukushima's water and cannot be taken out by any known technology. John Boyd, writing for Forbes, suggests that Prime Minister Abe, baby, his cabinet members, along with TEPCO executives, should visit Fukushima Daiichi and, while standing in front of one of the giant tanks, each drink a glass of the tritiated water. No, that's a PR gimmick. That's a photo op. One glass won't do it. How about hooking up pipes so that Fukushima's tritiated water provides the water to the Diet, the Japanese government, and all government offices, and the official prime minister's residence. That way they can cook with it, wash with it, drink it in their coffee, take showers in it, wash their dogs in it, and get real about the exposure. And not just do it for a day or a couple of days, but make it for the duration. And then see what happens. See how willing they are to expose themselves to that degree of contamination. As the people of Fukushima did, and as the sailors of the USS Ronald Reagan were forced to do when they were on the ship in the plume from Fukushima. And we'll have a link up on the website under this episode, number 254, to a petition in Japan that says no to the policy of using contaminated soil from Fukushima 
for public works. That's right. They want to spread the pain by spreading the radiation all over the country in public works. Let's tell them not to. Please go sign the petition. It'll be linked on the website. Remember the story about Entergy's Waterford plant? Getting off with a slap on the wrist and a kiss on the rump for having falsified 10 months of fire inspection records? Doesn't work that way in Germany. Workers at two nuclear power plants in western Germany submitted fake reports of their checks on radiation meters. News of the falsified checks at the Philipsburg power plant in Baden-Württemberg led to the state's environmental ministry ordering a halt in plans to bring the reactor there back online. The subcontractor employed to carry out the safety checks may now face legal action. Meanwhile, in neighboring Hesse, a second nuclear plant just 60 kilometers away from Philipsburg was revealed to have suffered from a near-identical safety failure. A worker responsible for checking radiation levels at the deactivated Biblis nuclear plant filed fake safety reports throughout 2014 and 2015. In both places, regular inspections are now back in place and steps have been taken to prevent a repeat of the failures. A German nuclear plant has been hit by computer viruses. German federal cyber investigators are analyzing how the Gundtremagen plant became infected with viruses that were found in office computers and in a system used to model the movement of nuclear fuel rods. In France, in early April, a used steam generator was dropped within the reactor building of Unit 2 of the Paloel nuclear power plant in France. The facility had been taken offline in May of 2012 for its third 10-yearly in-service inspection. During this period, work has been undertaken to enable the unit to continue operating for at least another 10 years. But the steam generator, measuring 22 meters in height and weighing 465 tons, fell and came to rest partly on the reactor building's concrete floor and also on the protective plates covering the reactor cavity. And some of these plates were damaged by the fall. So much for that 10-year extension. An incident at the hotly contested Fessenheim nuclear facility in France in 2014 was more serious than previously known. German media reports claim the authorities in France withheld information detailing the gravity of the situation. The incident happened on April 9th of 2014, when one of the reactors had to be shut down after water was found leaking from several places. Researchers from German daily Süddeutsche Zeitung and public broadcaster WDR claimed the incident at Fessenheim was possibly one of the most dramatic nuclear accidents ever in Western Europe, that the reactor could not be shut down in an ordinary fashion due to control rods being jammed and had to be shut down by adding boron to the pressure vessel, an unprecedented procedure in Western Europe. This situation is all the more worrying because, according to a new report, France is dangerously ill-prepared to deal with a nuclear accident. The report, by France's ANCCLI Commission, I guess they're the ones who check on nuclear matters, warns that even though a national response plan was made public in February of 2014, nothing has been put in place. 
France is not ready to face a serious nuclear accident. So it's not surprising that on Monday, April 11th, Luxembourg offered to chip in to finance the closing of an aging French nuclear power plant near its border, saying the tiny nation could be obliterated if the station malfunctioned. Luxembourg's Prime Minister Xavier Battelle said problems at the Cattenum plant could, quote, wipe the duchy off the map. The Cattenum site scares us. There's no point in hiding it. Our greatest wish is that it close. Belgium is going to provide iodine pills to its entire population of around 11 million people to protect against radioactivity in case of a nuclear accident. This move is especially pertinent in the wake of the terrorist attacks in Brussels of March 22nd of this year, which may have initially targeted Belgium's nuclear reactors. Please note that potassium iodide, which is what Belgium is going to be distributing, only works against radioactive iodine-134 and 137, and none of the other radionuclides that are released. So it is a partial protection and nothing more. And there's a great article out on informable.com, Who is Monitoring the Health of Populations Around Nuclear Power Plants? Good question. Cindy Folkers wrote it. We'll have a link up on the website under this episode number 254. We'll have this week's feature on the International Uranium Film Festival in just a moment. But first, Nuclear Hot Seat, as you well know, is listener-supported. If you're listening, that means you. And we rely on your donations to help keep us moving forward. So whatever you can do to help us meet these goals, please do it. Any amount is significant, to use the nuclear industry's favorite word. And one thing that we suggest is what I call the Starbucks donation. That is the equivalent of what you would spend for a cup of coffee. Usually it's somewhere around $5. And send that to us because, yes, that will help. Anything does. All you have to do is go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the big red Donate button, and follow the prompts to make your donation through PayPal. If you prefer a snail mail address where you can send a check, that can be handled too if you send us an email at info at nuclearhotseat.com. Know that whatever amount you can offer is deeply appreciated and, as always, is met with my gratitude. Because without your support, I can't keep doing this show. So thank you very much. The International Uranium Film Festival came to Hollywood last week. And I've got to say, for those of us who are used to the ongoing stress and slog and negativity of working on these issues, it was, you should pardon the expression, a blast. Activists, international filmmakers, actors, models, and genuine top-of-the-line Hollywood celebrities came together to watch powerful films, share an excited buzz of information, and network with each other on behalf of projects based on our shared nuclear concerns. The International Uranium Film Festival began in 2010 in Rio, before Fukushima, talk about prescient, and it has grown ever since, with presentations in Berlin, Quebec, Jordan, six cities in India, New York, Albuquerque, New Mexico, and, just last week, in the belly of the beast, the heart of Hollywood, Los Angeles, CA. Norbert Suchinek, 
the executive director, flew in from the festival's home base in Rio to attend. Amidst the exciting red carpet scrum, as reporters and photographers and celebrities competed for each other's attention, I was able to catch Norbert for this brief moment. Norbert Suchnik, you are here from Rio as executive director of the International Uranium Film Festival. This is your first time in Hollywood. How has this been for you? It's wonderful. I'm overwhelmed, I must say. We have a big crowd here. We have important distributors, filmmakers, uh, producers here. I'm very surprised that we have such a good start here in L.A. What for you has been the highlight so far? The highlights for me are always the films, like Nuclear Savage. But the second highlights are really the stars that are coming to the festival. They want to see those films about nuclear power that you can't see in other places. Can we count on you being here again next year for a longer Hollywood-based, Los Angeles-based International Uranium Film Festival? I do keep the fingers crossed that we come back very soon and for a longer time. Norbert Suchinek. Among the many celebrities there on the red carpet was the venerable Ed Asner, known to audiences as Lou Grant from the Mary Tyler Moore Show and the self-titled drama series. Ed remained characteristically terse and curmudgeonly in his opinion of our shared nuclear situation. If we don't kill ourselves with gunshot and poison gas and drones, then maybe eventually we'll have to worry about a nuclear holocaust. I think in people in desperation may well use the nukes just to stop all the nonsense we live with in this world. Ed Asner. Four films were screened last Wednesday for the festival, and several of the filmmakers attended from as far away as Germany, to participate in the events and the post-film Q&A. Hot Water, one of the films, tells the stories of those people impacted by uranium mining, atomic testing, nuclear energy, and the subsequent contamination that runs through our air, soil, and, even more dramatically, our water. Filmmaker Liz Rogers, who is also a longtime Nuclear Hot Seat fan, shared about her film. Liz, what has it meant to you to have your film Hot Water in the International Uranium Film Festival here in L.A.? It's been remarkable. I have been in touch with them for years. Norbert has wanted to have this film in the festival, and this is the first time we've really gotten everything together and made it possible, and it was a spectacular day. It's really made my day. Documentary filmmaking can be a very daunting and depressing process. And And also a solo kind of journey, too. Absolutely. And this festival has been extraordinary, and it has uh, cheered me up and inspired me to move on and move forward and keep going and fighting the battle and meeting other activists and filmmakers has been spectacular. Tell us briefly what the film is about and how it was received. Hot Water is about uranium contamination in our water supply from uranium mining for nuclear energy. So what I discovered was that there are thousands of abandoned uranium mines in the United States leaking into our water supplies and contaminating them. And there's no testing done for uranium contamination. There's no way to get uranium and radiation out of the water once it's in the water. 
and it is making people sick. Cancers, birth defects, leukemias, it's incredibly depressing and very frightening. If people wish to see this film or book it for an event, what's the best place for them to go? The website is zero, Z-E-R-O, hotwater.com. And I can be reached through the website. There's a trailer on the website. And the film can be licensed for screening for activist groups and so on. That would be through contacting me directly. And other than that, it's out on Google and Amazon and Vudu and every other streaming service. So it has it is in wide distribution now. So it can be downloaded and watched online. Well, best of luck to you with the film. Thank you so much. Liz Rogers of the film Hot Water. Final Picture is a German drama that shows the aftermath of a multinational atomic war on residents of a small town in the middle of Europe. Shot on a shoestring budget with no CGI or special effects, Final Picture nevertheless conveys the desperation of survivors when they discover that there is room for some, but not all of them, in the civil defense bunkers. It's a story of survival, until perhaps survival itself is not possible. The film was shot in part in actual bunkers in Germany and won the Yellow Archives Award for 2014 for director Michael von Hohenberg. After the Q&A that followed his film, Michael spoke about the senselessness of nuclear war and the dangers we face by having a military leadership that is making decisions about all our futures without having had a direct experience of what war, and specifically nuclear war, can mean. Yeah, how can we change all the things? Yeah, we have to talk to our governments. We have to explain the important people, the deciding people. We don't want that bombs. We don't need nuclear bombs. For what? For peace? It's it's a piece of what we needed for peace, yeah. And I think uh, if we do some films like Final Picture, if we do films like On the Beach... It's important because we can show all the people in a modern way what the bombs will happen to us. So I think it's a good thing to do films about it, but also to talk about it. That's the most important thing. If you saw a film like this, tell your neighbor what you think about this. And so if we are enough people at the end, we will kill the bombs before they kill us. In the governments now, there are people who didn't have anything to do with the Second World War. They were not into it. They just heard about it. And so now we start to think about, can't we do a little war because we need more resources, we need to get more power? So the government people now start to think more about doing another war and what's really stupid, because everybody knows that war is the worst thing we can have. I think that's a big problem, that our government people now had nothing to do with war, with a Second World War. Michael von Hohenberg, director of the film Final Picture, which won the Yellow Archives Award for 2014. Nuclear Savage uncovers one of the most troubling chapters in modern American history, 
how the Marshall Islanders, considered by our military leadership to be an, quote, uncivilized culture, end quote, were deliberately used as human guinea pigs to study the effects of nuclear fallout on human beings. This film won the Yellow Archives Award in 2013. Longtime Los Angeles-based activist Myla Reason had this to say about Nuclear Savage, as well as a closely related issue raised by her viewing of the film. Hi, well, I saw three very powerful films today. I saw a film about the Marshall Islands that was just heartbreaking. The fact that we conducted human radiation experiments on the inhabitants of three of the um, islands in the Marshall Islands. And it also came out, the fact that very few people know that we conducted human radiation experiments on American citizens as well in this country. There were women, mostly poor women, who went to Vanderbilt University for prenatal care. They were told that they were getting enriched breakfast cereal, but it turned out that that breakfast cereal was enriched with enriched uranium. I mean, you know, depleted uranium, so-called. I'm I'm sorry, I'm kind of off track from the the movies, but of course human radiation experiments was one of the things that was highlighted. But the last film, the film called The Man Who Saved the World, really blew my mind. I didn't know that story. I didn't know that we came so close to the brink of nuclear disaster. And if it hadn't been for one man who was well aware that if he had decided to launch missiles that it would have ended life on earth and he stood firm and he prevailed and he didn't launch missiles in 1983 or I wouldn't be here to talk about it. Los Angeles-based longtime anti-nuclear activist Myla Reason. The film she referenced at the end was the featured film of this festival. The Man Who Saved the World. It tells the gripping true story of Stanislav Petrov, the Russian colonel in charge of nuclear launch codes who went against military protocol, the force of history, and personal programming to single-handedly avert a nuclear world war. It's a true story of bravery, and in docudrama form features Stanislav Petrov himself, as well as Kevin Costner, Walter Cronkite, Robert De Niro, and Matt Damon. To learn more about The Man Who Saved the World, listen to an interview with producer Christian Brune on April 19th's Nuclear Hot Seat number 252. It was common that attendees brought their own nuclear information to this film festival, and finding others interested in subjects that few people in other parts of their lives wanted to discuss, they eagerly shared their knowledge with others. To my surprise, that included members of the media who were friends of mine. Paul Jasek and Mary Kennedy are the compassionate, whip-smart comedians behind Oh Mary, a wildly popular internet TV talk show that has roughly 200,000 viewers worldwide. Here to start out is Paul talking about two incidents growing up in Colorado near Rocky Flats. Mary follows with observations about her childhood in New England. 
talking with Paul Jasek and Mary Kennedy of the Oh Mary Show. And Paul grew up in... Longmont, Colorado. Mm -hmm. And that's very close to Rocky Flats. Tell me some of the things you were just mentioning about growing up in proximity. The field trip? Sure. Well, the field trip was to the St. Vrain Nuclear Plant. And that was in high school. And it had just opened. It was my social studies class. And we were all very excited because there was a film strip about Mr. Adam being our friend. And we walked through the whole plant. We walked through the, between the yeah. reactors and, and that it was completely safe. And we were all very comforted. We were stepping into a new age. And the plant was closed not too many years ago. And you also said that where you live was not far from Rocky Flats. From Rocky Flats. In fact, the stretch of road there was what we took to go visit my brother down in, in Denver. Uh, it skirts along the foothills and goes right into Denver. It's a, a pretty desolate part of, of Colorado. And my father was telling me one time we were talking about Rocky Flats when it closed. And uh, he, he drove that stretch of road a lot. And they would move stuff at night. There were big, large caravans of trucks and also with large containers on the back. And he followed one, one late one night, not terribly far, but he noticed the very next day something must have happened because they had brand new asphalt for like 20 miles straight down the very same street. And to have gotten a crew out in the middle of the night and then spread 20 miles of asphalt, he always wondered what had happened. Sounds like it could have been a spill. Could it sounds like. What brings you here to the Uranium Film Festival? What's your level of interest in it? Mary and I were talking. We like current events and something I've been watching Nuclear Hot Seat from the stands, as it were. And because of my exposure, so to speak, of the St. Vrain nuclear plant, my brother also served on a nuclear submarine. And I often remember thinking, well, what do they do when those get old? Because now he left the service in 69, so all of that class of submarine... Where did all of those reactors and where did all of that waste go? You can only bury so much of it in Nevada, I suppose. So, um, <laughs> Actually, you can't bury any of it in Nevada. That's closed. And, and that's closed, too? And the one down in Carlsbad had an accident on Valentine's oh, Day two well. years ago, so that one's not open either. And currently, I even said to Mary, you know what, there are two nuclear plants currently leaking in America. Why isn't anyone talking about it? Well, see, listen, in the 80s, mm -hmm. when, when I was in high school, I'm from Massachusetts, and the nuclear plant was up in New Hampshire on the seacoast. And it was this huge thing about this is the future, and this is our nuclear energy, and how great is this? And, and, and it's never been great up there. They've always had problems. And, you know, it was always this, this supposed to be a sea town that's supposed to be, you know, we go and we, we tourists and all that stuff. It's been closed down. People wouldn't move near there. I mean, it wasn't the palace of interest as everybody thought it would be. It turned out to be a disaster. And so for me as a kid, I always had that in the back of my head. So I'm interested in this. I need to know more, I think. You know, we get all these different stories, and I want to know more. Well, I'll be glad to fill you in on anything <laughs> you like, and you're in the right place. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. My Thank pleasure. You. Thank, Thank you. you. Mary Kennedy and Paul Jasek of the O oh Mary Internet TV Talk Show. Two of the anti-nuclear movement's best, most reliable filmmakers came down from Northern California for the festival. Mary Beth Brangan and Jim Heddle of Eon3, the Ecological Options Network, couldn't wait to meet up with other filmmakers. And Mary Beth was beyond her usual ebullient self in response to the film festival. Well, I am delighted, Mary Beth Brangan from Ecological Options Network, to be here with Libby Halevi and other wonderful people who have been working their hmms off, working on the nuclear issue from all over the world. And they're here tonight 
celebrating and watching these fabulous films. And then we had this great panel discussion with Libby and Harvey and Mimi Kennedy and others. And it, it's just been a pleasure to be here. I'm so inspired and energized. I'm ready to go back to work again. And, of course, next time when we have this here next year, we're going to do everything possible to have one of the Eon 3 films up for other people to take a look at because you so deserve to be acknowledged in that way. Oh, thank you so much. And I'm, I'm hoping, I'm praying that we will have shutdown finished by that time. Actually, this year, a film of ours was accepted into the Uranium Film Festival and it was shown in Rio. It was from 1991. It was the documentary that we made to describe the beginning of the efforts to stop the Ward Valley dump that was in the end successful. Yeah, I was the first statewide coordinator for that effort. Thank you for that work and for that film and we'll get something a little bit more current up next year. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Mary Beth Brangan of the Ecological Options Network. You can find the Eon 3 videos and archives going back decades and documenting our ongoing battles at eon3.net or on YouTube, where you can subscribe to the Eon 3 channel. Another activist filmmaker working on a project and aiming for inclusion at an upcoming international uranium film festival is Petraea Patrick. Yeah, I just actually uh, made a film called Black Star, which actually talks about the electric grid. It's a, an antiquated system, the way our electric grids run. And the film discusses that if the actual grid should be attacked by, by terrorists or by, like, cyber hacking or even the sun. The sun can send an e, what they call a CME, which is an electromagnetic pulse, and it can knock out the entire electric grid in one fell swoop. That would leave us with no water because our water is run by electricity. All of our power, all of our communications, all of our transportation, our food delivery would be gone in a very, very short time. And we would be dying of cholera-borne typhoid-type diseases because we wouldn't have any water here in L.A. Or in other, other towns, too. I mean, we all need water. This is the main thing that we need to, to be alive is food and water. We can't eat money. But our banks would go away, too. So what does that do to the nuclear power plants? If our country doesn't have any power... For two weeks, the backup generators in those nuclear power plants shut down. We would have Fukushima times 98 here in this country, and the United States would be gone. We would be history in a, a very short time. Filmmaker Petraea Patrick. Other artists have made contributions to anti-nuclear perspectives, and it was my pleasure to meet an Indian recording artist with an international reputation that ranges over the past 35 years. Asha told me about Fallout Dust, a song she wrote and recorded back in 1981. It's called Fallout Dust, and it was inspired, well, and prompted, it was motivated by the fact that in India, the Tarapur nuclear facility, nuclear reactor, there was a leak there which was reported, and they had to clean it up. And that prompted me to write this song about fallout dust and what can happen with the fallout. And uh, it was recorded in 1979. It was pre-Chernobyl. So a lot of people said, 
you know, what made you write this song? Because nobody spoke about the Tarapur incident because it was not a major issue. It had been contained in time in a way, you know. That's it was a leak. Said. Yes, that's what they said. But, you know, these things cannot be contained. They can, it's like, it just cannot be contained. Once it's out, it's leaking, it's leaking. And so, and you can hear it on YouTube. Somebody, somebody has posted it on YouTube, a little segment of fallout dust. And the lyrics are fallout dust, decontamination, fallout dust, gonna start mutation, fallout dust falling through the sky. That was Indian recording artist Asha Putli. We'll hear more from Asha and Fallout Dust at the end of this show. Also in attendance was the singing voice of Nuclear Hot Seat. You hear her every week, Marilee Weber. And she was in attendance for the film festival and deeply impacted by all the films we saw. She had this to say following her viewing of Hot Water. All the taxpayers are paying for all of the, you know, the spills and the problems that the, that is it's, it's all we're, we're paying for all this stuff. It's just outrageous. It is. Yeah. And then our kids will pay for it. Mm-hmm. You know, my kids, your grandkids, and their, their great grandkids. Yeah. And beyond. Yeah, I believe it. The singing voice of Nuclear Hot Seat, Marilee Weber. One of the most memorable interviews of the evening was with Karen Kramer. She's the wife of the late Stanley Kramer, who directed On the Beach and many other socially conscious films, such as The Defiant Ones and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Karen is also the mother of actress and producer Kat Kramer, who co-moderated the evening's nuclear power panel and is the founder of Kat Kramer's Films That Changed the World. Karen gave us all a glimpse of what it was like to present On the Beach in 1959 to a world that was not exactly ready to listen to the truth about nuclear war. Karen, you've been such a supporter of the International Uranium Film Festival, and of course Kat has been so involved with her series, Kat Kramer Films That Changed the World. Tell us about your experience here at the film festival and why you think this is so important. Well, I thought it was important in 1959 as well, when Stanley made On the Beach, which is the first film about this subject. It's not a happy film. And it was really criticized quite a bit because people don't want to accept the fact that we have a real problem that we're not addressing. We weren't addressing it in 1959 either. And he decided when he made this film with the, with the scientists who said, Mr. Kramer, if we lose a few million doesn't mean we're going to lose the whole world. And Stanley said, well, that's about as close to the end of the world as I'd like to get. So he decided what he was going to do is premiere it in every major city, in every major country in the world, all in one night. On December the 7th, which is, of course, we celebrate Pearl Harbor Day. That was the first time we were attacked on our own soil from the Germans and the Japanese during World War II. So he chose that date. And in those days, we didn't have CNN like we have today or all the television channels, and we didn't get the world news quite the same way we do today. But we had in motion picture houses a documentary film that was called The March of Time. It was like a newscast, but it didn't play all the time, maybe once a month. But because he premiered this particular film of On the Beach in every major country, in every major, every major city, and he had Gregory Peck in one part of the world, Ava Gardner in another, Fred Astaire in another, uh, Tony Perkins in another, they're the stars of the film, and himself in another part of the world. 
it made it onto the March of Time. And it became such a major event because kings and queens and heads of state from every country came out to see that film. And that film alone started the disarmament talks at the United Nations. Now let's speed it up a little bit. Nothing really happened much. We only had Russia had the bomb and we had the bomb and that was all. Now look at us. Everybody's got it. People are not even as civilized as we were in 1959. We were building bomb shelters in our backyards, most Americans thinking that it was going to save us from the bomb, but we didn't know much about radiation, actually. We were so naive about it. And look where we are today. It's worse. The fear is greater. And we're not addressing it as much as we need to. There's so much wrong in the world today. There's so many issues that need to be looked at. But this... You can't even address the other issues if we don't have a world to live in. So this is why this film festival is so important. That's why everybody who makes a film like this probably isn't going to make a lot of money, but that's not why they should be doing it. They need to educate. I'm so proud of my daughter. It's a kind of a Kramer thing, I think, because we're all activists. Stanley was an activist before he met me. I was an activist. And, of course, our children, it's only natural chain of event that they become activists as well. But with Kat's Films That Changed the World, which has been a very successful series with social issues, she has young people, young actors and actresses who are teenagers, who she calls them her ambassadors. They come to every single thing she does because they want to be educated, and she wants them to be educated at young ages. So it has an outreach to it. I'm very proud of her. And there was a documentary recently made in Australia by an Australian filmmaker because On the Beach was the first American film made in Australia, full-length film made there. And a filmmaker there made a documentary about the making of On the Beach, which I'm on, and I talk about the subjects and the making of that film. We just have to keep regenerating the subject, as depressing as it is. We have to regenerate it or nothing is ever going to happen. We're going to stay just like we are. It's going to get worse and worse and worse until something could really happen. That's why I think this film festival is important. That was Karen Kramer. The nuclear power panel was co-moderated by Kat Kramer and Harvey Wasserman and featured Lou Gossett Jr., Isai Morales, and activist Mimi Kennedy, as well as myself. Unfortunately, there were some technical challenges to the audio quality, which are in the process of being cleaned up, fingers crossed. We will bring you the highlights of that lively, enlightening discussion in a future episode of Nuclear Hot Seat. Elena Nicholson of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation drove down from Santa Barbara to participate in this ingathering of concerned, aware citizens and film lovers. She did a wonderful job of summing up the feelings of so many attendees. I feel amazing because I realized that many more people are concerned about the issue or got interested in the issue than I thought, including the Hollywood crowd. What brought me here, I'm passionate about nuclear disarmament. I work, obviously, at the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation, and I was curious of what are the artists and filmmakers are doing to address this very complex issue that most people want to hide under the carpet and never think about. And I am transformed. What did you think about the man who saved the world? I'm originally from Russia, and my entire family are military officers. I was touched. I cried. 
I recognize the man in my family, in this wonderful man, and I wish more people saw it, and I wish more people knew his story. Last, but certainly not least, Harvey Wasserman, who has been a bright solar topic presence in our anti-nuclear lives for more decades than some of you listeners have been alive. Harvey did a great job co-moderating the nuclear power panel and had this to say at the end of a very satisfying evening. The fabulous Harvey Wasserman. How do you feel about the International Uranium Film Festival, your participation? Fantastic event. A very, very beautiful event. Very powerful, very important. Uh, We reached a lot of really powerful people here. You gave a great message about the media community jumping in on these issues. Very important. If we can make it in L.A., we can make it everywhere. Sounds like a song. (laughs) Yes. The quality of the films was fabulous. The quality of the audiences was great. I mean, this is really a very powerful day. We'll do it again. Norbert Willing. That was Harvey Wasserman, Mr. Solartopia himself, and yes, Harvey, Norbert is willing. So for now, that ends this year's installment of the International Uranium Film Festival in Hollywood. But we're all looking forward to next year's and the year after that and the year after that. I'll have some closing thoughts on the festival in just a moment. But first, activist shout out. Best of luck, Godspeed, and safe journey to Dawn Chapman and Karen Nickel of Just Moms STL and the Westlake Landfill page on Facebook. They are currently traveling to the United Nations to attend a meeting that will give them the opportunity to share more information about their concerns and the concerns of their entire community about the radioactive contamination leaking out of the Westlake Landfill. This is highly radioactive World War II-era nuclear weapons waste that has been illegally buried in a landfill for over 40 years. And now at an adjacent landfill, there is an unstoppable, unquenchable underground fire that is bearing down upon it and, at last report, was within 500 yards of radioactive material. The Westlake moms have been indomitable in putting their energy forth to get changes made, to get the Army Corps of Engineers to take over the cleanup and to have it taken away from the Environmental Protection Agency, which has basically punted it for more years than we care to mention here. Having had meetings at the White House and with the head of the EPA, Gina, never met a nuke I didn't like in cover for McCarthy, these two women are now on their way to the U.N., to deliver testimonials that will give a clear picture of the damage and the mental and emotional abuse that all those who live in the Westlake Landfill area are facing. They are going to deliver a copy of the St. Louis County Evacuation Plan and all the letters from the surrounding school districts about the need for children to shelter in place should the fire hit the waste. Dawn and Karen, go safely and knock some sense into their heads, would you please? These are two of the most remarkable women I have ever met. Here's today's final thought. The International Uranium Film Festival now moves on to its home base in Rio, where this month it will present 50 films in 10 days. That's quite a schedule, and it's something to shoot for here in Hollywood. However, The anti-nuclear foot is now in the entertainment industry's door. 
So the IUFF plans to return to Los Angeles next year for a longer stand and to become a cornerstone in our efforts to wake the entertainment industry up to the never-ending potential for stories, movies, plot lines, characters, songs, and all forms of financially rewarding creative expression dealing with nuclear issues from our perspective. We've got your good guys, we got your bad guys, we've got your international collaborations and your conspiracies. Heroes, sheroes, science fiction or political thriller, John Stewart-esque satire, rap song or Broadway musical, or a rap song Broadway musical. This arena has potential for it all and much more. And let's face it, there is no consistent coverage of nuclear issues in the mainstream media. That leaves entertainment as the best possible means of conveying the truth about what's happening to the world and its life forms at the subatomic nuclear level. Here at Nuclear Hot Seat, whatever the result, as the Uranium Film Festival moves forward in all of its incarnations, we will keep you posted. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, May 3, 2016. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from enenews.com, comonews.com, king5.com, counterpunch.org, capecodtimes.com, rt.com, stlouis.cbslocal.com, ap, Kyoto, World Water and Climate Foundation, asahi.com, bbc.com, fukushima-diary.com, and iori mochizuki, forbes.com, change.org, thelocal.de, bloomberg.com, en, dot rfi dot fr dw dot com the local dot fr yahoo dot com ottawa citizen dot com national geographic dot com and formable dot com the nuclear regulatory commission the zombie apocalypse cubicle drones who write for the world nuclear news and the gold standard of activists who gather on the nuclear hot seat site on facebook which you are all invited to visit and like Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. Nuclear Hot Seat is syndicated by UCY.TV, StuWebRadioNetwork.com, NewZSentinel.com, ActivateMedia.org, PlanetExperts.com, and now on WGRN-FM Broadcast in Columbus, Ohio. Woohoo! We're on the air! We're always looking for other stations and networks to connect with, so if you know a news aggregator or radio station that would like to carry this show, put us in touch. Check out the archive of over 250 shows on the website, NuclearHotSeat.com, and our YouTube channel under Nuclear Hot Seat Videos, and on iTunes under Podcasts. If you sign up on the website for the free chapter from the ebook Yes, I Glow in the Dark, it will put you on our database, and you will receive notice of Nuclear Hot Seat via email every week with a cute little link to the show itself. And a reminder that your contributions are what keep us going and growing. So make a donation when and if you can. Any amount is appreciated and honored. You can do so by going to NuclearHotSeat.com and clicking on the big red donate button. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues worldwide. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2016, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. Going out this week on Fallout Dust by Asha Putli. 
This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now don't go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Papa's done. 